0: Hello, welcome to the Whiskey Bench. I'm Stephen Torna.
1: I'm Kat Dwyer.
0: I hope you all are having a lovely day, whatever time it may be. We are here this evening in the air quote studio. Mm-hmm. It is blizzarding outside. Big time. Um, it's freezing cold. And we're drinking tropical cocktails. (laughs)
1: Right. (laughs) We're dreaming of sandy beaches. (laughs) So,
0: you know, I don't know what's going on there, but Kat, how you doing?
1: I'm good. I told you already, I shoveled snow three times today.
0: That's wild. And uh, I was around most of the day doing like office stuff and I didn't shovel once.
1: Well, yeah, (laughs) I just, I feel like my landlord pays me to shovel for her property next door. So I'm just like, I don't know. It's a job. It's a job. But, um. Yeah, we're supposed to get over a foot in town over the course of this storm, which is really a lot. That is a lot. I know
0: Bridger's getting some crazy amount. Yeah. Some friends. Mr. Zach is going skiing this weekend.
1: Nice. I had a couple of staff members, including my CEO, who were like, we're going to go ski. Yeah. <laughs> so they just took off. That's great. <laughs> yeah.
0: And uh, Monday's going to be frigid, freezing cold.
1: Yeah. Negative 20 at night on uh, Sunday, yeah. I think.
0: I'm not sure how much we're going to get done on Monday. Yeah. We might take an L. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do we have any random bookkeeping? I don't think so. I feel like we had a good catch up last week. We
1: did. Yeah. And
0: this week is... Has... I don't even know what happened this week.
1: I know, it's a blur. <laughs> I'm,
0: I'm so lost, but that's all right. However, tonight is exciting because we are diving into our first long miniseries of the year. So that's super exciting. Kat and I were just talking about how this might actually kind of uh, scratch an itch that we've both had concerning other topics. I think there's a lot of interwoven things going on here. It's going to tie into probably Russia and Ukraine a little bit. Might even tie into, well not might, it's going to tie into the CIA, all sorts of crazy stuff. So we are going to be talking about the war on drugs. And everything surrounding that. However, before we begin this evening, we have to talk about the drink. Because Mm. this is the first time we've had a cocktail in a while. Because the last two episodes have been news and brews. That's right. So, I'm getting back into it. Assessing the liquor cabinet. Seeing where I'm running low on stuff. And trying to get recipes. Figuring out which bottles will cover a wide variety. It's going to be a lot of new cocktails. Shared this year and hopefully some repeats. Cough, cough, Negronis. Yes. Cough, cough. Um, (laughs) But this evening, mostly because I thought that it's perfectly fitting, we will be enjoying some (laughs) painkillers. So the painkiller is a variation of the pina colada, which I know we had featured at some point. It is two ounces of a dark rum, two ounces of pineapple juice, two ounces of fresh squeezed orange juice, and one ounce of cream of coconut. I did not use cream of coconut because it's so sweet. I ended up just going coconut milk. Good call. But if you wanted it on the sweeter side, cream of coconut's great. And then you just garnish it with nutmeg and some pineapple wedges, which the pineapples at the store... Did not look delicious, so (laughs) I skipped out on the fresh pineapple. Um, So, yeah, it's a twist on the pina colada. The painkiller is a rich and fruity cocktail that stays true to its name. It will cure what ails you. (laughs) I don't know if that's true. We'll see by the time I'm done with this. Anyway, it was something created in the 1970s at a bar called the Soggy Dollar Bar in the British Virgin Islands, the BVIs. Which, fun fact, my roommates are going to be sailing... In the BVI here in a couple weeks. Right on. Which is exciting.
1: They're doing a lot of traveling. Yeah, they're doing fun
0: stuff. Anyway, the bar got its name because so many of the people sailing would either swim ashore or like, you know, they'd take like a dinghy aboard mm-hmm. and oftentimes their money would get wet. <laughs> and so they would exchange soggy dollars. And so that's where it's got its name. So that's, that's kind great. of fun. Anyway, that's that's the only bookkeeping is our delicious drink, which I'm going to take a sip.
1: It's tasty. Yeah.
0: Insert slurping sounds.
1: <laughs> I also just love the crushed ice. Oh, yeah.
0: I uh, found my ice crushing bag. It's just a canvas bag that I bought, like, I don't even know, f- six years ago. <laughs> Forgot I had it. It was packed away in some box. I just put ice in it and beat it to death with a hammer. In my case, a rolling <laughs> pin. Mm,
1: right. It's great. Sorry, because we were talking about Paul Pelosi before this. Episode. Yeah. <laughs> I laughed, which is awful. Right.
0: That's laugh. That is awful, but it's, you know. Hammers are risky business. Yes. Anyway, I've said it before. There will be many more tiki drinks to be had. I really need to find some proper tiki glasses. I
1: have tiki glasses that I should just give to you.
0: Or just they could stay here. They can stay until here. you need them. <laughs>
1: yeah. And then we'll make or, that happen. Or
0: I could coordinate better and be like, I'm going to do a tiki drink this week. Do you want to bring your little tiki fellows over? Yeah. <laughs> and then go from there. But. Yeah, I say we just kind of jump into it. Cool. So, this episode is...
1: Brought to you by Pfizer. Yeah. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> uh,
0: I wish we had Pfizer money.
1: Uh, wouldn't that be great? Just
0: kidding. I would never do that. <laughs> okay, look. I, this is a distraction. I, guys, I'm so sorry. I forgot to tell you and listeners, I swear on my life... In the, in the car, on the radio, two days ago, I heard an ad for, like, make sure if you have these side effects, you go see a doctor for strokes. And then, at the end, it said, this message was brought to you by Pfizer. For
1: fuck's sake.
0: <laughs> and I was like, uh.
1: The need for this ad was brought to you by Pfizer. <laughs> and, and
0: look, I don't really want to get into this because, yeah, frankly, yeah. I don't, I don't, I have not really a strong opinion on this. Talk about bad PR. Like putting out ads like that at a time where there's quite a division on the whole the whole topic. Efficacy of the
1: vaccines. Yeah, totally. Well, Well, they sponsor most of our media. And and to be
0: fair, it was it was brought to you by Pfizer and some other company. But I was like, maybe just pull your name off of that one for the time being. Mm -hmm. Like you don't have to tell everyone that you're sponsoring this. Yeah. Uh, anyway.
1: Yep, yep, yep.
0: This episode, we're diving into the drug war. Mm Mm-hmm. We are probably just going to be going over some early history, some fun facts. It's crazy town, guys. My notes are a little bit scattered this evening because I just kept finding these really weird things in articles and everything where they would just, like, say something. And you'd just be like, uh, that seems odd. Like, so-and-so, who was the director of this department, like, gave permission to the CIA to, like, start MK Ultra, And then they just move on and you're like... <laughs> that seems like a big deal. Yeah. Um. And so there's all these little rabbit holes that I was going down and all these weird connections. So this is going to be a fun series. Mm-hmm. I believe cat that I have some earlier history than you. Okay. However, I do know you said you kind of had a little bit of information about how drugs were treated kind mm-hmm. of earlier. Yeah. Now, how early um, I have just kind of a little bit of information about how drugs were treated. Like, you know, America before, like, 1880, between 1880, 1915, and then, like, on, but...
1: Okay, yeah, I guess my, my history would probably fit that same timeline. I cool. kind of just went by category of drug. Yeah. And thought we could kind of run through, like, how each of them were treated, but... Totally, Let's wherever do Wherever you think we should start.
0: Let's start with just... Because that's important, right? Because as Cause we see context. in this history, like, certain drugs were targeted for no reason, really... Most people are aware of this, right? So let's let's dive into that if we can.
1: Okay, cool. Top of our list, cocaine. Right. Uh, (laughs) Which obviously was... People
0: been doing cocaine a while.
1: They have, yes. For many years, it was legally distributed and an active ingredient in a number of products. It was first labeled as a pharmaceutical for those with low energy... And as an energy boosting supplement for athletes. And we're talking oh. like late nineteenth century. Right. By the turn of the twentieth century, cocaine could be found in products like Coca-Cola mm-hmm. and even margarine, which is kind of Whoa, wild. Whoa, I didn't never heard that. Cocaine butter. <laughs> um
0: I can't believe it's not butter. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. <laughs> <laughs>
1: and and it was like regularly prescribed by doctors as Mm -hmm. sort of a cure-all for a ton of things, including morphine addiction. Nice. So they got you on cocaine to get you off morphine, to asthma, to tuberculosis, to hay fever.
0: Nice. Now, as far as using it, do you have a timeline for that as far as using it for addiction? Because one thing I didn't really look into very much Mm -hmm. was like what people's understanding of addiction was, early I, yeah uh, I, I at least know like before 1900 it wasn't like common right that people would like know like that addiction was really
1: right yeah i think
0: categorized
1: so i think a lot of these drugs were kind of used as pharmaceuticals mm-hmm. in the late 19th century by the early 20th century kind of like in the decades following the civil war opium addiction became like apparent mm-hmm. and that's Why at the turn of the 20th century doctors were prescribing cocaine to get you unhooked from opium, right? Um, and so I think so really by like the beginning of the 20th century, like addiction in to various substances became more and more apparent. Right. And it kind of was in phases, right? Like opium was kind of first, and alcohol, and then eventually like cocaine addiction became apparent. Um, Yep. So they
0: tried to push other other things in there. I did read that in 1890 could buy vials of cocaine from Sears. Out of the magazine.
1: Is that right? Yeah. <laughs> the good old days. The good old days. <laughs> um, when,
0: when men were men and drugs or drugs.
1: Right. Oh <laughs> <laughs> right. uh, yeah. So so by nineteen fourteen people realized that it became apparent that people could get addicted to cocaine fairly easily. Yes. So they Congress passed the Harrison Act of nineteen fourteen and it right. basically banned non medical uses. Yep. It also taxed a variety it. of drugs. Okay. Yeah.
0: So it was it was the regulated and taxation of the production, importation, and distribution. Okay. Of there you cocaine go. and opiates.
1: Yeah, and it required like medical professionals to yes. basically regulate it more.
0: And then a little bit before that, 1909, there was someone else or something mm. else implemented the Smoking Opium Exclusion Act okay. of 1909, and that banned the possession, importation, and use of opium for smoking. Although it could still be used as medication. Uh, and it was the first federal law to ban the non medical use of substance, although many states and counties had banned alcohol sale previously. So before 1909, there was like no regulation on drugs. And that's, I mean, drugs have been used in the United States before then a ton. Right. Um, right. But 1909, when they f- was the first time that they, they banned any like non medical use of, of substance.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Opium in particular has mm-hmm. kind of a long history in the United States and yes. all of these things were used like in other parts of the world earlier, like dating farther back, but mm-hmm. we're just talking about the U.S. So the U.S. legally imported opium for more than a hundred years. It was obviously regarded as a powerful pain reliever because it is. And by ni- 1858, it was reported that 300,000 pounds of opium came to America each year. That's a good amount that we were importing. Yeah. Opiates gained uh more widespread use during the Civil War with morphine um, when available used on the battlefield to manage pain and then like veterans were sort of prescribed it after to deal with what we would now call like PTSD or just like chronic pain from severe wounds. Yep. And then in 1895 pharmaceutical giant Bayer which is still with us today um, released a new drug more powerful than aspirin and quote safer than morphine marketed under the brand name (laughs) (laughs) heroin
0: <laughs> oh my god <laughs> <laughs> yeah so, uh, i didn't i missed this detail that's amazing
1: yeah so by the early 20th century heroin abuse became obvious um right and heroin
0: abuse ties very closely into this story that i'm gonna go into here shortly
1: okay there yes. you go yeah yeah this will come back up in in the 60s which i think is kind of where we're culminating for tonight uh like we're in building to that so so after it was obvious people could get addicted to morphine um or excuse me heroin congress passed the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 it just mandated that manufacturers disclose like what is in their products so consumers know like if it has heroin in it right <laughs> uh which is maybe a good thing and then and then a few years after that they passed what you the two you had described um the opium exclusion act and then the Harrison Act of 1914 yep. that and restricted its sale
0: just a couple years after that <laughs> We have the 18th Amendment and Prohibition. So kind of all just stacked on.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. Have you seen that classic photo of all these old broads that are like, if alcohol touches your lips, you're not going to touch ours or something? And you look <laughs> at the photo and it's like, oof. <laughs> I don't know if that was a hard bargain for anyone. <laughs> uh, Uh, Next on my list is marijuana. So basically, much like cocaine and opium, it was a popular ingredient and a lot of medical products in the 19th century. It wasn't until after the Mexican Revolution of 1910, when Mexican immigrants arrived in the U.S. with marijuana, that recreational use became more common, not just medicinal, but recreational. Yep. And then when the Great Depression hit and people were unemployed and immigrant labor was seen as a threat... People associated marijuana with Mexican immigrant labor and sort of the culture turned on it.
0: Right. Well, and from what I could read, that was actually quite strategic the implementation of calling it marijuana.
1: Oh, is that right? Because before
0: commonplace, it was hemp and cannabis. Mm. And because of immigration. Oh. They opted to start calling it marijuana
1: to closely associate closely it, associated with Mexicans, it with Mexicans
0: yeah. and then, you know, hmm. all of that stuff. So that's very go. interesting
1: as well. Another day, another psyop. Yeah, exactly. As, as they say. Um, so by 1931, it was outlawed in 29 states. And then in 1937... The federal government established the Marijuana Tax Act, which criminalized marijuana possession and sale. And then uh, by 1952, Congress passed the Boggs Act, which enforced mandatory sentences for offenses involving a number of drugs, including marijuana. And the first offense for marijuana possession carried a minimum sentence of two to ten years. Any other thoughts on that?
0: Uh, No, I don't believe so, because then I guess 1970 then was... Nixon. Oh, wait, sorry. Controlled Substances I, Act or...
1: I meant just on the drugs. Oh, on the drugs. I've got two more to go through. Oh, perfect. Quickly, Perfect. Quickly, perfect. Quickly. So
0: Boggs yeah. was the last one and then... Yeah.
1: So then LSD which
0: I didn't you, get much into LSD but...
1: Learned this. Well, when we started but, talking no, about the no. CIA, yeah, there's yeah, exactly. a lot there. But so LSD was created in 1938 by a Swiss scientist named Albert Hoffman and he basically ingested it on accident and then started to hallucinate and was like, well... That was fun. <laughs> and so ah. It eventually found its way to the U.S. when the CIA began conducting experiments with it. I think a lot of people are aware of this, but the CIA thought that they could utilize it for mind control and use it in interrogations. And so like at the beginning of the Cold War, after World War Two, they like heavily invested in figuring out a way to utilize LSD. Yep. And that really is how it was brought to the United States. And as we'll get into this, I'm sure, like, later down the road in this series, but the CIA, through their experiments, like, that's how it got out into the public. And then we criminalized it. And, yep. But basically, up until the 1960s, before they, the CIA's, like, wider spread experiments with it, only a small number of people had, like, in the U.S. had ever done it. Um, and it was typically people... because. There also were like psychiatrists that were experimenting with it to see how it could help with like depression and anxiety and things like that. There are like stories of people who were friends with psychiatrists that like got to experiment with it and try it. Um, But other than those limited numbers, most people hadn't come in contact with it until it kind of blew up on the scene after the 60s or like during the 60s and into the 70s. And then in 1968, Congress passed the Stagger's dodd bill which made it illegal to possess lsd um and then lastly i'll just quickly mention mdma which was first created in 1912 by a german pharmaceutical company and it was meant it was actually meant to control uterine bleeding Hmm. which is interesting i don't know enough about it to explain how it would do that but it eventually made its way to the u.s in the 1970s again through psychiatrists that were like experimenting with it to see how it could help with like trauma and anxiety and stress and then it really didn't become like popular for recreational use and like on the streets widely until uh like the mid 80s and then like throughout the late 80s and 90s it was it's like known as being like a party drug in the rave scene but so all of these drugs were either used for medicinal purposes and like actually marketed and sold that way or they were like studied for medicinal purposes or like Mind control, <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> but they all have like medical potential.
0: Uh, yeah, the yeah. CIA is like, Yeah, this is for medicine, yeah,
1: <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, so that's my quick rundown on that.
0: Beautiful. So, yeah, I'm gonna hop in then and I'm gonna talk about this guy, uh, named Harry J. Anslinger, all right, who is a horrible human being
1: can I pause you for just a second is this what year what years are you covering with this
0: so this is like um 1900 to like okay 1960 okay cool when he retired cool cool
1: I just have like a little thing on on nineteen six like the sixties that oh perfect
0: and I don't have much on when that. we get, yeah so, so we'll we'll get there okay cool but guys this story is insane and as I read about this and the weird connections <laughs> with Hollywood and jazz and hmm. the black community and like I said this man is a horrible human being and like after reading about it and what he did and like all this stuff like he literally is responsible for everything and he changed the course of the world forever and like ruined everything so (laughs) here we go all right harry j anslinger uh born may 20 1892 more or less like just raised in a very poor family his dad worked for the railroad so at a young age i think he was like eight he got a job with the railroad. From what I could tell somehow later on in his career he got involved with like seeking out fraud I think in payroll or something like that Mm -hmm. through like investigation and things like that and kind of built a name for him and in that he kind of built an absolute hate of organized crime and things like that. He was one of the early identifiers of like gang and mafia operations in the United States. And he was actually, he was correct about that. Like he, he was speaking about it and trying to get people's attention saying like, no, there's these big organized networks of mafia and things like that, that are running these crime circles and all this. And, and so he identified that pretty early and, and good on him, I guess that was the one maybe good thing, maybe. <laughs> but on top of that, like you can see in statements, <laughs> a horribly racist person, hated black people hated jazz music. I got some quotes on this because it's important because this ties into the story of of everything going on here. Here we go. So just just some context onto why he was targeting black community so much, which ties into why that community was targeted so much, just in general, throughout the whole early drug war and and later or war on drugs and everything like that. But here's a quote from and Anslinger, Mr. Harry. Reefer makes darkies think they're as good as white men, he was quoted as saying. Yikes! Yes. Here's another quote: There are 100,000 total marijuana smokers in the U.S., and most are Negroes, Hispanics, Filipinos, and entertainers. Their satanic music, jazz, and swing result from (laughs) marijuana use. Wow! This marijuana causes white women to seek sexual relations with Negroes, entertainers, (laughs) and any others. And that is what really launched the marijuana targets later on in the 30s. Hmm. But what's really interesting is that early on he made public statements saying that marijuana wasn't a problem. It doesn't, you know, it's harmless. And he was really hard on opiums, cocaine, heroin, and things like that. But there's a context here, right? Like, just very, very racist. But I'm going to back up just a little bit. Basically, like I said, Harry kind of had a knack for organized crime, he wasn't a fan of that. Part of the disdain for jazz and everything like that was that a lot of jazz players were playing in speakeasies, and so a lot of black entertainers, although not directly implemented, were, in quote, tied up with gangs and mafia and stuff like that because they were entertaining and being paid by organized crime. Harry hated that. On top of that, I think he had some experience when he was young with someone that had addiction. I could not find a confirmation on this. But there's a story of when he was really young, hearing a neighbor, because this was like early, like right before the turn of the century, he was little, hearing like a neighbor screaming or something like that. And the husband telling him to like run to town and get medicine from the doctor. And then seeing this woman, as soon as she was handed the drugs, calm down from like a manic state. Mm. And then I think that kind of like stuck with him. So that was his first maybe, again, I I cannot confirm that this is actually, but this it's like maybe an origin story. And he was like, what is going on with this? Like, this is, you know, yeah. destroying people. And so he saw addiction and everything like that. And so you can say, oh, he was coming at it with good intentions. Like,
1: yeah, well,
0: you know, whatever. He pretty quickly made his way into government and climbed the ranks fairly quickly. He had some lower positions, like I said, with investigation and some work with police force as well as military. And then he was the first commissioner of the U.S. Treasury Department, Federal Bureau of Narcotics. So that branch was created and he was the first person to run it. Now, what's interesting.
1: When was that created? Do you ever-
0: um, that was I actually don't have a date on that. It was after the Harrison Act but 19-something, I believe. I might have a note on it somewhere. But he served under President Hoover, Roosevelt, Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy. He was a massive supporter of prohibition, as well as the criminalization of all drugs, and he spearheaded most anti-drug policy during his um, like 32 years of, in quote, service. But what's interesting is that when he was when he got the position of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, he was offered the position from his father-in-law, uh, Andrew Mellon, under Hoover. So he married this woman. His father-in-law happened to have a lot of power hmm. and was probably just like, oh, you love like, you know, the whole narc, or you hate the whole narcotics <laughs> and everything like that. Why don't you come and, and take this position of power? And so basically That gave him the position and the resources to launch a full-scale attack on drugs. And so this meant, like, massive targeting of specifically the the black community and jazz players, targeting them. There was a lot of heroin abuse and, obviously, getting caught up with prohibition and everything like that. So targeting these communities. And what is wild is that he wasn't finding very much success. And what was happening is that he thought that if he went into these communities and started arresting musicians, that it might cause some strife within the community and maybe cause some infighting and kind of tear apart.
1: Cohesion. Cohesion. But
0: what he didn't realize is that it was such a tight knit community that no one could stay in prison because... All of these jazz players in these communities would just post bail Hmm. and he was burning down a budget and, you know, his superiors were talking about like, hey, we can't keep doing this. It's not really working. And so he needed to like find a victory and kind of like attack the morale and get some success. And so this is where stuff gets absolutely crazy.
1: Oh, God. And what I'm sorry, what was his position again?
0: He was the head of the the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. Okay, and so right. all the regulatory, all of the punishment, he basically was the one that suggested all of the punishment. So yeah, intense prison
1: because they had just created this, so right. it's like exactly. kind of his brainchild. Exactly. Okay,
0: um, and so his his rule was like dramatic drug bur- busts, really harsh penalties. You know, questionable or like fudge data as far as. You know, 100,000 people smoke marijuana, and it's the majority, like, you know, blacks and Hispanics, when, like, everyone was smoking, like, it, it was equal, you know, everyone was smoking it or, or whatever.
1: And probably really hard to get accurate data then on that.
0: Yes. Yes. Also, part of that was going through World War One. this is a side note, and seeing the need for morphine and things like that and shortages, like, between World War One and World War Two, especially as he saw a a world war becoming more imminent was stockpiling uh, morphine and Mm -hmm. so he managed to before World War II in Fort Knox stockpile 300 tons of morphine that was used for the war effort which is a wild fact right but anyway during this time some of you might be familiar with Billie Holiday Uh, well first of all anyone that's listening you should seriously look into Billie Holiday's life because talk about Going through hell until the day you died.
1: Yeah, she definitely um, did.
0: So no, you know, respect to her. Seriously, go look at her story and just the horrible life that she had to live.
1: I'll I'll just say real quick that mm-hmm. I am. Um, I've been a fan of her music for a mm-hmm. long time, and there was a documentary that came out. Well, not quite a documentary, but like a film about her that came mm-hmm. out just like a year ago or two years ago. And I was so excited to watch it. And I watched it the other night, like a couple weeks ago. And it's awful. It's awful. No, like her life, yes, yeah, is yeah, awful. Like yeah. total trauma and abuse and growing up and completely neglected with no father and a mother who was a prostitute and like horrible stuff. And she obviously fell into drugs. But the movie itself was really bad. Oh, Just like poorly executed. Yeah. Like kind of bizarre. It's a bummer. There's probably better things to watch to learn about Billie Holiday. But Mm -hmm. anyway, just wanted to complain about that movie. Oh, yeah, no.
0: (laughs) Worth complaining about. In 1939, Billie Holiday really came to prominence uh, with a performance of her song Strange Fruit, which is a song that is directly talking about slavery and 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 lynching and lynching and all of that
1: yeah
0: and anslinger hated that song and and made it like a personal mission of his to target her and like destroy her
1: so that's what this movie is about mm-hmm. um it's about this this story of him going after her they don't go into him much yeah. Which is again why that movie sucks Because there's like no context for anything I think they thought they are being artful But they weren't It just left you completely lost the entire time It's called the United States vs. Billie Holiday Anyways But it is about that And they depicted it in a way that he Was like obsessively He tried to make her like a symbol of I mean she was in many ways And that song was a symbol of the civil rights movement And right. destroying her was a way to destroy That movement Is how the film depicted it, anyway. Yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, anyway, he just, like, was targeting her, and, I mean, there's not a lot of detail to go into because it was actually pretty quick that all this happened, but she was a heroin addict, and he knew that, and he was friends with other heroin addicts that were not black and had no real issue with that and actually kind of used them real quick, you know, just kind of to add to the fact that it really was... Motivated by by racism, he was uh pretty good friends with what's her face, the uh, lady that played Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz,
1: Dorothy Ju- Gale. That right? No, no,
0: Judy something is her actual <laughs> oh. her actual name. <laughs>
1: I was like, wait, that doesn't seem right. Right, right, Judy. Garland uh,
0: Garland yes so at the same time he was like Yikes. close I wouldn't say friends but like closely associated with with Judy Garland who also had a crippling heroin addiction oh is that right and I would think
1: a lot of people in Hollywood at the time I know right
0: and also like promoted it and and that's a whole nother weird story of just there's so many messed up things around the story looking to look into that whole thing and and her addiction and crazy stuff that was going on in the sets of the movies, and it's a mess.
1: What, like, people doing heroin?
0: Just, like, like heroin and orgies and oh, this crazy stuff, drugs and huh. abuse and... Yeah. Ugh.
1: We kind of have this, or at least I do, and I think it's common, this, like, mm-hmm. picture of, I don't know, America of old being right. somehow, like, pure Right. Than it is today. And in some ways it was, right? Like what was culturally acceptable is different than what is today. Mm-hmm. But like addiction, abuse, promiscuity, like whatever, all those things existed. No, oh, yeah, totally. Amply. Totally. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Basically, uh, Anslinger just like sent agents at her, like trying to cause trouble in clubs, trying to find possession of things. You know, she was arrested multiple times. Um, on charges of, of you know, having heroin.
1: Didn't they set up, like, didn't they have an undercover agent who was a black man that mm-hmm. she, like, kind of fell in with? And eventually, I think, at least the way the film depicted it, they like, they eventually, like, form a real relationship, and he kind of, like, stops targeting her, but he they used him initially. So
0: I didn't look into it this much, but what I believe is that when... Billie Holiday was very young. Before she started singing, she was able to track down where her mother was. And her mother was a prostitute. Yeah. And she got caught up in that same brothel or whatever. Yeah. And basically... I kind think that's
1: of like how she survived. How
0: she survived yeah. and got basically put under control of a pimp mm. um, who then she later married.
1: Well, that's all... Yeah, that's... Yes. yes.
0: And then I believe there was another man that was an agent. Yeah. But I I don't know. I thought it was was her, in quote, husband, the pimp that got caught up in this. But maybe it was a different man.
1: I think they both... Maybe so. Like, played her.
0: Yeah, totally. And, you know, long story short, again, it's worth looking into. There's a ton of... I'm going to... There's a ton of articles I'm going to share that are a great story rundown of all this. But, I mean, long story short... She finally, you know, she, she went before many trials, oftentimes, even in a time that there was, you know, a lot of racism, juries were like, this is ridiculous. Like, there's no reason why she should be charged for this. But eventually she was unable to successfully defend herself in court and she pled uh, or she pleaded that she could at least go to a hospital and get clean. And they denied that and she went to prison for two or three years and then shortly afterwards ended up in a hospital due to some heart-related issues uh, due to drug use in which uh, Harry basically locked her in the hospital room under lock and key of agents, went so far as to what they think is because she was in a bed like dying stage or place heroin in her room to try to get her on another charge.
1: Jesus Christ.
0: Uh, yeah. And then, you know,
1: yeah, they tried to plant it. I think that's where the ex-husband comes yes, in. He plant, like yeah. eventually got paid off by them or something oh, and so. would help plant stuff yeah. on her.
0: Uh, but yeah, plant stuff on her to try yeah. to get her, you know, convicted again. And she ended up dying in that hospital. Um, of heart failure
1: it's 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 says something it's i mean she was influential obviously and like that's why he targeted her but the obsessive nature of his pursuit says a lot about him yes and his own trauma and bizarro relationships i mean he was he was obsessed
0: yeah absolutely
1: and kind of given like, and I guess it's because it was like a new bureau, but like given sort of unlimited power, it seems like.
0: Absolutely. And this is the time when, when, uh, spy agencies are being formed as we talked about in the history of the, the Russia, Ukraine. I mean, yeah. this is directly at that time. And so Harry, uh, being head of the FBN worked really closely with the spy agencies And he began corresponding with General William, a.k.a. Wild Bill Donovan, who was the founder of the OSS, Office of Strategic Services, which turned into into the CIA. mm -hmm. And Federal Bureau of Narcotic Agents and Harry himself provided training to the OSS for undercover work, for surveillance, as a result of his experience, because a lot of what he did was this kind of stuff. And he was also involved in, again, investigating crime circles so I guess he was qualified to do that, but worked very closely with these, with these agencies. So, you know, he was working on finding connections with mafia and drug trafficking, which led to something referred to as the French Connection. So then Harry made it his goal to open departments of the FBN across the globe. And so he started Federal Bureau of Necrotic, of Narcotic Agencies in Rome. And then after World War II, before the Cold War and the rise of communism, he opened, like, agencies in, like, 17 countries Hmm. that were spying and investigating and trying to track down drug traffickers across the world.
1: With the idea being that they were trafficking into the U.S. and that's why he had any business doing that, or?
0: I was wondering that and I could not find anything that was suggesting that was his hypothesis. Which really,
1: really into it. Yes. Really into it.
0: (laughs) And, you know, I mentioned this earlier. one of the big reasons why he targeted marijuana use so much, frankly, uh, given his earlier statements of him thinking it's not an issue is that he, there just wasn't that many people doing heroin and, and, and cocaine and narcotics in the scheme of things. Mm-hmm. And he was spending a ton of money. And his superiors were saying, yo, we don't have funding for this. And so <laughs> he made it also his personal goal to make it more lucrative. And that's why he started targeting marijuana. So he would keep getting funding.
1: And how did that make it more lucrative?
0: Just because a lot of people were using marijuana.
1: Oh, okay. It was and just so widespread.
0: he would be able to basically show that his funding was doing something
1: yeah i see Um, yeah
0: and so he would be able to bust people and arrest. so like the
1: more people so he had an incentive to arrest more people yes to demonstrate that he was yes successful yes wow
0: from 1921 to 23 harry worked as vice counselor to the american commissioner to berlin um in hamburg germany at the time it was a worldwide distributor for illicit drugs um, and that was when he first saw the international problem of narcotics Which I think then, yeah, led opening stuff all across the world. He was transferred to the State Department in the Bahamas, where he was addressed to track down rum runners. So he was sailing all across the Bahamas, like busting people smuggling rum, also fitting while we're drinking rum tonight. Right. (laughs) Um and then, like, worked with British to try to get them to be more active in f- enforcing, like, the rum running.
1: Is this post-World War II at this point? Yeah, this okay. is.
0: No, no, no. This is in between World War One and World War II. Oh, okay. So, this is 1926.
1: Got it. Okay. Um, wow. So,
0: this, I'm, I'm going back a little bit. This is before the Billy Holiday thing.
1: Mm.
0: He was promoted. To, oh, right. So, this is all before he was the, the narcotics guy. He was promoted to commissioner of prohibition at the Treasury Department in 29. He then started overseeing the National Narcotics Control Board. He suggested reform to the Volstead Act, which had to do with Prohibition. And then in 1930, the Bureau of Narcotics was created, and he was named head of that, that commission. I just want to close off here before maybe we tie into the little, a little bit of a, a different era. You know, he, up through the 60s, was in this position and deeply entrenched in the, the war on narcotics, marijuana, ties with CIA. And this is something that I did not get to dive in very much, but I did mention it to Cat before we started. Harry was the one that signed off and gave approval to, to give this position uh, to White to become a CIA consultant. At the start of a CIA, CIA operation called Midnight Climax, which was the overarching kind of umbrella project That MKUltra stemmed out of. And. I need to track this down more and see where Harry pops up before and after all of this. But I just thought that was an interesting.
1: Harry's Harry. What was his last name? White?
0: Uh, No. So Harry um, Aslinger is the Aslinger Aslinger is the
1: is what am I saying? Yeah.
0: Federal Bureau of Narcotics.
1: And he's signed off on the CIA is what eventually became MK ultra and
0: yes, yes, exactly. So he saw, he signed off this guy named George Hunter white to become an agent for the CIA who then was like pretty intimately involved in the pay ultra thing. Mm. And he's the one that formed and was responsible for creating like multiple brothels run by the CIA across the United States.
1: Right. Which is how they, that's like, was their way of experimenting with the drugs Like getting people to go there to experiment with the drugs and also a way to. Because
0: specifically, at least at the beginning, the goal of this experiment was basically to see how sex and LSD combined. And they just used.
1: (laughs) Sounds fun. They literally just
0: like drugged people like (laughs) patrons of of these brothels. Totally. And then would just like behind me, like research them.
1: Well, and yeah. they would, and they'd use the women, like the women, the prostitutes were basically like agents. Yes, at that point, they were actually prostitutes, but they were like getting paid off by the CIA. Yes, to they would dose the men. Yep, that was the ex- center of the experiment, and then the women would like see what they could get out of them in right. that state. Yep. It was the swinging sixties, and the CIA was like, "How can we combine these two? <laughs> yeah, things oh yeah, to totally get the Russians." Yeah, and then wild. you know, just
0: one last thing too, you know, tying into the the whole you know horrible racism associated with all of this, you know, part of Harry's whole campaign as well. On top of you know, black and Hispanics' use of marijuana was also you know Chinese use of opiums, especially with the rise of communism, pretty easy propaganda target and right. And, yeah, all that kind of stuff. So, a little bit disorganized there. I'm sorry, guys, but read read about this guy. Read about Billie Holiday, and it's just insane. Yeah. You're like, how is this even real life?
1: I mean, really, the way he targeted her explicitly is um, kind of bizarre. I mean, it speaks yeah. to her, the power she had, and influence right. she had, but right. also, like I said before, it's, it reveals a lot about that guy's psyche. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, like, context for... You know, late 19th century when this stuff was first gaining popularity for medical purposes and then eventually recreational, the turn of the 20th century, and then the federal government realized for a variety of reasons, some of it just driven by like wanting to quell racial tensions and a push for equality, um, criminalized a lot of this stuff. I just wanted to talk about one year in particular before we close out, and that is 1968. Because it really seemed to be like the year that changed America and also the year that sh- shifted this idea of a war on drugs and kind of made it more of a real, not real, but more of a concentrated effort. So many historians regard 1968 as, as a piv- pivotal year that changed America. You could say that the America before 1968 was distinctly different than the year after or the America after that year. It was an inflection point and it was a year where cultural tensions that had been simmering for decades finally boiled over. And I sort of have like a list here of the things some of the the I wouldn't describe them as high points. I'd describe them as low points, but sort of the the things that built toward this atmosphere of chaos and tension. Um. Obviously, there was the assassination of President Kennedy in yep. 1963,
0: which we could talk about because we we haven't with all of you know, released documents recently and some crazy ties to guess who,
1: right? <laughs> They're involved in everything. Yeah.
0: So just so so everyone knows, listeners, at church the answer to every question is Jesus, and on the whiskey bench. The answer to every question is what?
1: The CIA. CIA. <laughs> <laughs> it really is true. But And we just, we didn't set out with that goal in mind. It's just like the more we research stuff, like literally from our Ukraine, Russia no. series to this drug war series to what we were doing on like MKUltra and stuff. And yeah, it's Kennedy. Yeah, the CIA really had its sticky little fingers in a lot of a lot of stuff. So Kennedy's assassinated, that rocks the country, of course. Then, simultaneously, you've got the Vietnam War raging. Mm -hmm. By 1968, this is an astounding figure that I had, I mean, I knew, but I didn't, this put it into perspective for me. By 1968, there were approximately 485,000 U.S. troops in Vietnam. Mm. 485,000.
0: Wow. That's a ton. Yeah, a ton of which were unwilling, right?
1: totally yeah Yeah. right drafted Drafted. young men I think I forget I wish I had this figure in front of me the median age was I mean they were like 19 18 19 20 year old boys like they were kids and also 1968 over 20,000 had been killed Americans the death toll and lack of a compelling reason for involvement and a lack of a clear like path to success ignited obviously a passionate anti-war movement Um, and then the Ted offensive of that same year was was a turning point that kind of crystallized American opposition to the war. The civil rights movement, of course, was gaining steam throughout the sixties. By the latter half of the sixties, by sixty eight, it had grown sort of you could say impatient and then militant. You have the assassination of Martin Luther King in nineteen sixty eight, which, which is another. <laughs> oh right, yeah, yeah. CIA is involved in that too. CIA involved in that. Involved in that yeah. um, and that obviously sparked more racial tension and not tension, just full-fledged like combat. Then Democrat presidential candidate, Kennedy, Robert Kennedy is assassinated in 1968. That rocked the country. You have the rise of feminism and culture war over, you know, sexual promiscu- promiscuity. Um, you have birth control pill hitting Mm -hmm. the market that changes everything for women you have the hippie movement and sort of this rejection of traditional values and then pitting kind of young versus old and then the pervasiveness of the tube quote-unquote like television Mm. becoming more affordable being in everyone's home nightly news people are seeing they described the Vietnam War as like the, the living room war because it was like the first time where everyone's watching this stuff on their television. Yeah. Right. And it's mass media that's communicating these things to the public much faster than it had ever been communicated before. And it kind of turbocharged the evolution of American culture. So these are just that's just a sampling of the chaotic things that were happening throughout the 60s. And a lot of it culminated like the assassination of MLK in 1968 in that pivotal year. So that was also the year that Lyndon Johnson established the Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, because at that point, addiction was clearly an issue. But drugs, more than that, drugs had been associated with this counterculture, whether it's civil rights counterculture or feminism and that counterculture, or it's the hippie movement and that counterculture or the anti-war movement. Drugs became associated rightly or wrongly with each of those things. By the time of the presidential election in 1968, which Nixon won, President Richard Nixon won, mm-hmm. a good portion of the country was, I think, kind of reeling and sort of shocked by the cultural changes and definitely associated those changes with drug use. Mm-hmm. And we sort of ripe for somebody to, quote unquote, do something about it. So Nixon campaigned on a, a law and order platform and and, as I said, sort of zeroed in on drug use as a symptom and a culprit of the cultural decay that was eroding, you know, America of old or like the pre-1968 America. Yep. As we had noted earlier in the episode, like, prior to the 60s, the U.S. military and, like, various government agencies had experimented with certain drugs for seeing potential medical use. And then, as we noted, also potential, like, military application. But, again, as drugs became this symbol of, like, youthful rebellion and social upheaval and political dissent, government halted those types of experiments. Or, well, they did by the end of it. I mean, MKUltra and all that stuff was happening, like, throughout the 60s. So... By 1968, the government was like, we're not experimenting with this stuff in the way that we had in the past, and now we're going to start, mm-hmm. we're going to war against it. Um, so by June of 1971, President Nixon declares the war on drugs, and that's like the official, that's when that term is put into the American ecosystem, and that's when it really kicks off in a concerted way. So he dramatically increased the size and presence of federal drug control agencies and pushed through measures such as mandatory sentencing and no knock warrants, which obviously changed law enforcement and changed law enforcement's interaction with the public. Right. And then this is sort of the smoking gun quote that lays it out and speaks to a lot of what you were talking to earlier tonight with like what really motivated this effort to quell drug use a top Nixon aide named John Ehrlichman who was in Nixon's inner circle throughout the Watergate scandal. Mm-hmm. And Ehrlichman actually wound up being indicted and going to jail for that. And so later in life, much later out of jail, old man, nothing to fucking lose. Right. <laughs> He's interviewed and about sort of the war on drugs and, This is what he had to say. So it's a long quote. I'm just going to I'm going to read it in full. He says, quote, you want to know what this was really all about? The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but getting but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and the blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily. We could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them at night, night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. End quote. So he kind of just lays it out that, like, this going after drugs in the way that they did was a way of...
0: It was convenient for a different their
1: political ends political
0: end yeah and we are going to see that when we get into cia and cocaine especially in south america and how it wasn't ever about the drugs it was about fighting communism as a big picture like later on right it was like no like we don't really care about this like we'll do whatever it takes and we'll give Anyone that needs the power or will will even help run and distribute drugs that we are heavily, like, you know, punishing people for being in possession of. Right. But, like, we will be the ones that distribute it to our citizens.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: If we can, you know, take out the communist leader in, you know, Guatemala or whatever. You know what I mean? Like, right. Right. Crazy. Yeah. But, yeah, totally.
1: And I think... You know, I don't, I would assume that neither you or I are, we're not at, Whiskey Bench is not advocating for people to do heroin. No, Right. But I think it's very well established that the war on drugs has been a failure. It's wasted a ton of money and we'll have some specific figures I'm sure in later episodes, but like it's wasted a lot of money. It's wasted a lot of time and resources, it's wasted a lot of lives. Mm-hmm. And we don't really have much to show for it. And there are some ideas that I think are innovative and seem radical compared to the status quo about, like, legalizing things that, you know, at a certain point, it's probably worth experimenting with a different approach when you're saying the current approach has failed over and over and over again and had such a high cost. So I don't think... again, Whiskey Bench isn't advocating like that people do heroin, but I think what we are advocating is that the war on heroin and other drugs hasn't diminished the abuse of these drugs, but it's cost a lot.
0: It has, yeah. And it'll be interesting to get to talk more about also where not only did it fail, but actually probably
1: accelerate
0: accelerate the issue as far as creating tension where there never was in communities of people that were smuggling drugs. Also just the fact that it makes it more, you know, profitable to smuggle drugs. The unfortunate reality is if it's an illegal substance, there's no regulatory element to it. So you don't know what's in your drugs. We'll talk about the rise of fentanyl, Mm -hmm. which ties into that, right? You know, we'll talk about, displacement of minority groups by other minority groups due to drug related gang violence. Mm -hmm. Um, It's really all pretty nasty. Yeah. Arming our future enemies um, (laughs) over drugs. Yeah. Which then led to the death of thousands of Americans and hundreds of thousands of innocent people. And like, like as we've been discovering, like everything is so connected. Yeah. And you're like, Oh, I didn't realize that the war on drugs Somehow has a tie to what's going on in Russia right now, right? Or (laughs) like, you know, just random stuff like that. Like it's uh, crazy.
1: It is. There's a lot of juicy content in this series. That's for sure.
0: We'll continue down the road of history at least a little bit. We're probably going to talk about hopefully some of the more specific campaigns. We'll see. I'm hoping to be able to maybe dive a little bit into the whole Iran-Contra thing. I would love to have some some good uh, talks about drug smuggling and the southern border uh, as we move forward in this conversation. It'd be interesting to tie this into how drug abuse is handled, good and bad, in the United States. Unfortunately, we'll have to probably put California under the <laughs> under the yeah. or in the dock again, right? And, right, right. But you know what's going on there and why they're handling it the way it is and
1: mm-hmm.
0: why it hasn't been working. That's kind of what I'm interested in moving forward with. Should be great. More to come. Uh, with that, do we have anything else this evening? I
1: don't think so. It's
0: a good little rundown, a little fun history.
1: Follow us on Twitter. Follow Torna on Twitter. He's got some spicy tweets.
0: Yeah, I'm getting spicier. <laughs> we're, we're going after it. Yeah. Lots of, <laughs> lots more to come. I'm sure I'll probably be tweeting tonight. So <laughs> anyway, thanks for listening guys and gals i wish i had demographics on this
1: (laughs) i know yeah i have a feeling it's mostly like men in their mid to late 20s yeah early 30s probably but that's great the homies thanks (laughs) yeah
0: um y'all are great thanks for listening until next time cheers cheers